Every year we, of course, take a few moments and we um, reflect on the Reformation and why we celebrate it and a particular aspect of it. I've done a number of things over the years. Last year, you may recall that I talked especially about justification and our understanding of how God has declared us to be righteous through Christ. So um, tonight, I wanted to focus a little bit differently um, and uh, just spend a few moments uh, talking about uh, some of these matters. So so as we begin here, um, just first of all, just addressing the question, why do we celebrate the Reformation? And uh, the reason why we do it is not because we're trying to provide an alternative to Halloween. Um, Halloween, of course, is based on All Hallows' Eve, and so the Catholic holiday of All Saints' Day and so forth, and from that developed uh, the ideas of, of ghosts and souls and disembodied spirits and, and all these evil things and such. Uh, nor do we do this as a harvest or fall festival. Um, we'll do that next month when we celebrate Thanksgiving. The reason why we do this is to remember God's grace to his church here about 500 years ago. Um, as I have here, of course, on October 31st, 1517, uh, this is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg in Germany. And that was kind of like their, their public billboard, as it were. Um, you could post something there, and um, it can be all kinds of things. But here for Luther, it was to point out some of the problems in the Catholic Church. And in God's providence, this sparked, as we say, the Reformation. There were things that preceded this, and certainly things that followed it. Uh, but in God's providence, this is how it started, you could say. And we might be able to say that this is the biggest event that happened in the church since Pentecost and the first decades of the first century. With the apostles and prophets and the expansion of the church and the writing of the New Testament, after all that, possibly we could say that the Reformation was the biggest event since that time. And so hence we want to remember God's grace to the church, how he brought us uh, out of the darkness of some of the teaching in the Catholic Church unto the gospel. So, one of the things that I want us to uh, address here this evening is the need for a new reformation. We often talk about revivals. We had the first Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening here in America, and we talk about revivals and churches hold revival meetings and all that, and Okay, fair enough. But I think we have gotten to the point where we need a new reformation, not just a revival of things, though there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's gotten to the point where we need to go the next step, as it were, and totally reform most everything that is happening in the church in our country. And so let me address three ideas here uh, briefly tonight. Uh, And I want to connect it with the first Reformation and where we stand today. And so first of all, then, 
Uh, in the days of the Reformation, <clears throat> the Bible, of course, as many of you know, was only in Latin. And the sermons and the liturgies were in Latin. And by the time you get into the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century, hardly anybody knew Latin except for the people in the church. And they gave all these spiritual reasons why they should continue to use Latin. But very few people could understand the scriptures because of this. Well, there were people who said, we need to do something about this. We need to bring God's word into the language of the people. And even 150 years before Luther and uh, his 95 theses, there were men who were trying to do this. Some of the most well-known names would be John Wycliffe and John Huss. You're talking roughly 1380 in that time frame. Uh, And then there's a man named Thomas Linacre. He was in 1490. And I found a quote from him that I wanted to read here briefly. In translating the Bible, he says, Either the original Greek is not the gospel, or we are not Christians. Now let me back up here just a moment, because uh, the Renaissance preceded the Reformation. And a number of things happened during the Renaissance, and one of them was they found some of the manuscripts of the New Testament and even the Hebrew. And they started learning the Greek and the Hebrew, and they started translating it, and they started to see, hey, wait a second, this is something different than what we have in our Latin Bibles, or what the church is teaching us. And so hence his comment, either the Greek is not the gospel, or we are not Christians, because what we believe, based from the Catholic Church, is not what the the New Testament says. And so... Uh, following the quote, the place where I found this, said this, The Latin had become so corrupt that it no longer even preserved the message of the gospel. Yet the church still threatened to kill anyone who read the scriptures in any language other than Latin, though Latin was not an original language of the scriptures. Other men, obviously Gutenberg with the printing press, Colet, Erasmus, Tyndale, Coverdale, a man named John Rogers, 1537, so now we're coming after Luther, Uh, And many more, these men in particular were um, very deliberative about bringing the scriptures into English. And so we, of course, have benefited uh, from their work even these many years later. Luther, of course, did the same thing by translating the Bible into German. Calvin was influential with the French, with the, uh, um, uh, the Geneva Study Bible and so forth. Um... And so the Reformation was hugely instrumental in bringing the Bible to the everyday person. And many of these men were persecuted. Some of them were put to death for doing these things. All right, so this is one of the key events, you might say, of the Reformation. So what about us today? Here in our small sanctuary, we probably have upwards of 75, maybe 100 Bibles if you include the ones in the office and so forth. Probably everyone here has at least one, if not 10 or 20 in our homes. We have Bibles translated into many different languages around the world. We have many different versions in English. 
So on the one hand, we are in a very different place than uh, what the early reformers were dealing with. But on the other hand, I think we can say that the Bible is not accessible in the way that it should be. Let me say it like this. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11, God says, I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. I think we now, in our culture, have a famine of the word. How so? Well, let me address this point tonight, though we certainly could say other things. And some of the things that I... uh, uh, found in some of the statistics and so forth. In 2022, the literacy rate in America says that 21% of U.S. adults, 18 and older, are illiterate. So, in 2021, the U.S. population is listed at approximately 332,300,000 people. So 21% of that is about 70 million people in America cannot read and write. Of the remaining 262,300,000 approximately, 54% of them have a literacy rate below 6th grade level of reading. So that's approximately... 141,600,000 adults cannot read above a fifth grade level. Now, do you see the problem? The Bible is written at a level higher than fifth grade. We have almost 150 million people in our country that cannot read the level of the Bible. I'm glad you can. That's very good. It's one reason why I'm saying this. <laughs> okay. Now, this source where I found this went on to say that 34% of these people were not born in the U.S. Okay, certainly immigration is a factor here. There are certainly immigrants, especially illegal immigrants, that have come into our country that cannot speak, read, or write in English. However, There is a large number of immigrants that have come into our country that can speak, read, and write two, three, four, five different languages. It's usually the American that only knows one or part of one. So just another uh, couple more numbers here. New Hampshire has the highest rate of literacy in adults at 90%. California has the lowest rate with an overall illiteracy of 23%. Now, I mentioned New Hampshire here, and some of you may be aware that in New England, in the early parts of our our nation, uh, they were very intent on making sure everybody could read and write. They passed the so-called Deluder Satan Act. And the idea was they wanted everyone to be able to read and write so they would not be deluded. They would not fall prey to false teaching. They would not succumb to the ways of the devil. And they were... Pretty successful, 98, 99, even some communities had a 100% literacy rate. And the purpose was to be able to read and understand the scriptures. Even Israel in the Old Testament and in the New Testament with the church, they were intent on teaching their children how to read and write. Even the girls, which was unheard of 
in many of those uh, cultures back then. And the purpose is simply they want to know the scriptures. Literacy rates have been higher historically in Christian cultures, including our own. But I just told you that our culture is going the other direction. It is declining. And certainly, yes, part of it is the issue of immigration. But I think there are bigger issues. And one of them is the social media. Okay, the text speak, as it were. The intentional dumbing down of what is happening in our schools. Just today, I read an article about the state of Oregon, and it said that the Board of Education this week said high school graduates do not need to have a basic mastery of reading, writing, and math to receive their diplomas. Now, the argument is, well, the shutdown, right, slowed down their development and so forth. But, I mean, you're talking about high school seniors. They were, what, freshmen when the shutdown happened? They should have been able to read and write and do basic math by then. And, of course, they talk about racism and all that. But an illiterate populace is much more easily controlled. I also think a big reason that we face this in our culture is people just don't care. They'd rather sit down with a meme or try to find how many likes they can get on their social media page, watch movies, listen to music. These things are more important than actually learning to read and write, and in particular, than understanding the scriptures. There is a famine of the word today. And it's not because the Bible is not understandable in the sense of being in a language we don't understand. There's a famine in the, of the word today in our culture because so many people just can't read it. It is so sad. This is part of God's judgment on us. And we need a new reformation. We need to be teaching our children and others how to read and write. It seems like a basic thing, and, you know, maybe I'm preaching to the choir here. But it's certainly an issue in other places. Fewer and fewer people can read the scriptures. Fewer and fewer churches are teaching what the scripture says. I'll say more about that in a moment. And more and more churches, then, are accommodating this issue by simplifying the message to the point where it's simplistic and even wrong. And so we need to teach the truth, but we also need to teach the ability to read and then to understand what they are reading. Okay? And so <clears throat> that's the first thought. Okay? And oh, I forgot to write it down. Okay? Famine of the word. And the issue of literacy. The second point I wanted to address here tonight briefly is the issue of false teaching. And if I were to start with Luther here and his 95 theses, right, <clears throat> he posted on the door 95 reasons why the Catholic Church was wrong about a particular issue. And as many of you, I'm sure, know, the issue had to do with indulgences. And the basic idea here is that the church said, if you pay money, your sins can be forgiven. If you pay money, 
and a certain amount, these sins are forgiven. If you do other amount, your future sins will be forgiven. If you do a certain other amount, you can even have the sins of people in purgatory forgiven. And so here is Luther then writing 95 reasons why this is unbiblical. Because money for forgiveness without repentance is certainly not biblical. And he also talks about how penance is not a biblical idea. Now, Luther's specific issue here then led to many others, of course, who spoke out against various other false teachings in the Catholic Church. And we could talk about many others. But on the issue of this wrong view of repentance and salvation, we are living in a culture today, a church culture that is teaching the people in the church Wrong views of repentance and salvation. Now, as always, we could address a number of different things. But let me address what may be the biggest way this is happening in the churches in America today. And this is what some people have called the woke gospel. The woke gospel is a wrong view of repentance and salvation. Now, this isn't anything new. The social gospel has been around for upwards of 150 years, but it was in other places. Now it is in our face here in America. Sin is redefined. It's not breaking God's law. Sin now is being an oppressor. Sin may, sometimes they'll talk about it being serving an oppressor without pushing back. But for the most part, if you are oppressed... You cannot sin. You cannot be wrong. It's the oppressor who is wrong. And they also then will go on to say that the oppressor can never be forgiven. He can never find salvation. Even if he repents of his whiteness or his racism, even if he tries to lift up the oppressed, he cannot find salvation. He cannot find forgiveness. Salvation is helping the underprivileged, lifting up the oppressed, bringing down the oppressor. And the biggest oppressor, of course, are white people, white Christians, white Christian men, and white Christian rich men especially. These are the worst. They will also say that Jesus did not come to die for our sins, but to show us what love is and to lead us to overthrow the oppressor. Okay? Listen to preachers on TV and you're going to hear this. Go visit other churches and you're going to hear these kinds of things. Okay? But listen carefully because most of them are going to use terminology that sounds good, but they mean something different. Okay? And so notice we have a famine of the word in part because people, less and less people, are able to read and understand the scriptures. But we also have a famine of the word and need a new reformation today because even the word that is being proclaimed is false. And there, again, there are many other things we could talk about, but this seems to be maybe the forefront issue in our culture today, in church culture. Now, for those of you who uh, come to church, of course, in Sunday school, we've been watching 
this video, Enemies Within the Church, that addresses some of these things. And one of the key things that we see in this video is that it's not just the Catholic Church, not just the mainline churches that teach these things. The conservative ones do too, including the PCA. We must be aware. We need a new reformation today. As Luther addressed the wrong view of sin and salvation, so too we are surrounded by wrong views of sin and salvation. Maybe we should tack 95 theses on the door down in Atlanta. For those of you who don't know, that's the headquarters of the PCA. All right, now the third thing I wanted us to address here briefly tonight. Sorry, this thing is not helpful here, is it? Let's try this one, maybe you can read it better. No king but Christ. No king but Christ. In Luther's day, <clears throat> their concern, of course, was the Pope. The Pope, even today, is considered to be Christ on earth. Christ is in heaven. He's not here on earth. And instead of talking about the spirit of Christ being with us, like we do, the Catholic Church talks about the Pope is Christ with us. He is the vicar of Christ, as they would say. And so if you want to know what Jesus thinks, talk to the Pope, this kind of idea. But the reformers said, no, 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 uh-uh, no way. Uh, the Pope is not the head of the church. The, the Pope is not king of the church. The Pope is an antichrist. And if you've read any of Luther's things, you know he is quite um, colorful in the way he describes things. Uh, he's very adamant on this point. And I encourage you to read some of those things. But I wanted to um, focus a bit more here. I, I spent a little bit of time on people before Luther, on Luther, and now a little bit of people after Luther. And I'm thinking in particular of the Covenanters in the early 1600s. And the Covenanters are part of our spiritual heritage here. The Covenanters in Scotland, as well as in England and other places, they are the background for Presbyterianism. Scottish Presbyterianism and so forth was, um, can you say, an outgrowth of the teaching of the Covenanters. Okay, so this is our spiritual heritage. And at the time, uh, one of the things they faced was that the Church of England, along with the king, forced all the churches to use the Book of Common Prayer. Church of England, Anglican Church, right, and so on, said every church had to use the Book of Common Prayer. Now, there are some very good things in the Book of Common Prayer. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. There's some good things there. But the Covenanter said, absolutely not. You cannot tell us what to do. The king has no say over what the church does. Okay. Only Jesus can tell us what to do as a church, and we find that, of course, in his word. Many covenanters were persecuted. Some of them were put to death. The famous movie Braveheart precedes the covenanters, but there are some similar things there. And, of course, the Puritans left to come to America over these very things, among others. 
And so the reformers, and here now we're a bit after Luther, close to 100 years, they were adamant about saying only Jesus can tell us what to do as a church. The government has no say. Now, in the last few years, what have we heard in our country? In the last few years, we have heard governors, presidents, CDC, health officials in our country and even around the world determining the actions of the church, telling us that we can't meet together, that we cannot sing, that we cannot do normal church things. We can't fellowship together. We must do everything online or wear masks, social distance, so on and so forth. But there is one king of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. And he has told us what we should do in his word. The government cannot tell us what to do in terms of worship, certainly not for months on end. God told us, do not cease meeting together, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Paul tells us that we must sing to one another. Ephesians 5, verse 19. The Lord's Supper cannot be done online with Coke and a Dorito, which is what some churches have done. Okay? It means we're to be together, right? The Psalms of sense, right? We've got to go together to worship at God's house. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not to the health official in Harrisburg. Not to Governor Wolf or Shapiro now. But Jesus has that authority. And he tells us what to do. And it's not that complicated. And yet, we saw, especially two to three years ago, most churches in America did just whatever the human king told them to do and did not obey the true king and head of the church during the shutdown. Part of the reason why this is the case is because so many of these churches are teaching a woke gospel. They're not teaching the truth. And so they just do whatever the king says. Others have forgotten this principle of no king but Christ. They're not woke in their teaching, but they've forgotten this, and they use a misunderstanding of Romans 13 to justify their disobedience to Christ. We need a new reformation today. And for these three reasons, and I'm sure we could talk about others, we need a new reformation today. There will be another shutdown. They may do it for different reasons, but count on it. It'll happen. Our governing officials are gaining more power each and every day. So let's grow in our knowledge of the word, our ability to read and understand it so that we will teach the right things, including how Christians should respond to our governing authorities when they are wanting to take our freedoms away from us and our responsibility to serve our God. This coming Sunday, 
we'll finish this video on enemies within the church. And then after that, I'd like to watch another one. And it's called The Essential Church by John MacArthur. And he addresses this issue, no king but Christ. And he talks about the covenanters. It's very, very helpful for us. And so we have a famine of the word today. We need a new reformation. Let's understand this. Let's pray for this. Because there are a lot of young voices in here tonight. And it's such an encouragement. But it's going to be hard going forward unless God graciously grants another reformation. So let me close our time here then with prayer, and then we'll sing together. So let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to your church. We are thankful, Lord, that you have revealed your word to us. You have given it to us. You preserved it over these centuries by your spirit. You have raised up men and women over the years to understand it, to live by it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, that you would help us to know your word, to be able to understand, to teach our children to understand, and that we would uphold the teachings found therein, especially when it comes to the issues of the gospel, of sin and salvation, but also on this other relevant issue of how we live in society. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be merciful to us, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to return to the sources, to return to the truth, that we, maybe in our day, may enjoy another reformation like you did 500 years ago. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, be pleased to extend your kingdom and fulfill your promises here in this way, and that you would help each of us here in this need to know your word and to live by it. And so we pray um, uh, and just are, are so thankful, Lord, for the grace you have shown to us through your son and uh, the work that he has accomplished on our behalf to bring us back to yourself. And we thank you for this, Lord. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.